Weddings are interesting occasions where wonderful surprises can occur at the end of them and uh, indeed where food can run out. And uh, we've experienced both, Elizabeth and I. Occasion number one. I think of a wedding that Elizabeth and I attended uh, and it was extravagant to the extreme. So much so that at church next day my friend Laurie and I compared weddings. He and his wife had been to a wedding and uh, so had we, different weddings. And we were just interested to see how they stacked up because we both commented on how much money must have been spent at each wedding. Uh, in terms of comparing the food, we agreed that it was probably equal in quality. With great gusto, I explained at our wedding that the band had played for 45 minutes and then we had a singer who arrived who then entertained us for another hour or so. Laurie, in comparison, pointed out to us that they had a band and they had two singers, by contrast. And in the middle of it all, they had a children's magician appear as well. Well, how do you top that? Well, I explained that uh, in the dim hours of the wedding when just about everything was over and the bride and groom were long since gone and there were just a few of us chatting at tables, the caterers brought out these magnificent platters of prawns, king prawns, and there they were just for us few to consume with great gusto. Occasion number one, the wonderful surprise at the end. Occasion number two, in terms of things unravelling, we've experienced a wedding where the food literally ran out. And it really started from the beginning. Uh, it was hosted in a large pavilion in a rural property. And um, the various hors d'oeuvres came out. Uh, and people outside of the pavilion were missing out. They would come out, they'd sort of get to about the edge or the end of the pavilion and there'd be no more. Now you'd expect there'd be several dishes of each hors d'oeuvre and those people would be looked after. Well, not so. He just missed out. So much so that Ivan and myself um, realised it was much more sensible to go into the pavilion and to put yourself in a place where they had to walk past you so you could get some food. At 6pm, all the hors d'oeuvres were served and we sat down assuming that there was going to be a buffet would appear and uh, people would come around with the main courses. That didn't happen at all. Unbeknown to us, the caterers had long since left, taking any leftover food with them, and that was it. At 8.30, the sausage sizzle began, because the owners of the rural property realised the crisis, went down to the local supermarket, bought heaps of sausages and bread, and began the sausage sizzle. So here we are in a fascinating uh, story of Jesus' attendance at a wedding where the food literally runs out and there is a delightful surprise at the end. You'll notice from the passage that I'll be working through verses 1 to 11, that's what I'll do first, bringing out some interesting background that will help us to see the passage in a different way. 
And then I'm going to bring out four central truths from the passage, and then I'm going to, at the very end, bring out four applications. So that's how I'm going to proceed. You'll notice in verses 1 to 2, I'm just getting my Bible better placed here. Um, Getting to the right chapter, that will That the wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and his disciples. First thing we have to realise is something about um, Jewish weddings. They last longer than just one day. In fact, they last a week. The reason why they last a week is that guests are coming, in this case, from all over Israel and they have to be put up. Uh, the wedding will take place at a particular time and then, of course, they will all disappear back to the various areas that they came from. So it's a much longer celebration in the case of a marriage of a virgin, uh, i.e. a woman marrying for the first time, than it is in our Western culture. What is interesting in particular is that Jesus is pictured as a guest at a wedding and the, no one knows who the bridegroom is at all. He's there with his mother, his disciples are also invited. But one thing is not said about the bridegroom and it's a sad deficiency. He does not exhibit any faith at all in Jesus. So why would have Jesus come to such a wedding? Well, obviously his mother was invited, but Jesus and his disciples, not necessarily. I think it tells us something about Jesus himself. He must have been an incredibly gregarious, loving, outgoing kind of person that the bridegroom could not resist inviting him even though he of course did not believe in him as the Messiah dismissed him entirely and he could not resist inviting his disciples they were interesting and intriguing characters as well so more than family reciprocity is happening here something about Jesus himself is highly attractive. And that shouldn't surprise us. We as believers are told to rejoice with those who rejoice, to sorrow with those who sorrow. And Jesus is preeminently one who rejoiced with those who rejoiced. Are we like him? So there's the first little application that is of significance. You'll notice, of course, that in verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to them, they have no more wine. Now, more than just social embarrassment is involved here. Certainly, social embarrassment is involved, but more than that. Let's just deal with the social embarrassment first. But running out of wine is certainly a slur 
on those who were discharging, discharging the duties of hospitality. They had failed to provide hospitality. And in a culture where you give a gift and you receive back a gift, that is a major issue of shame for the family. It's also more likely a sign of their poverty. They had hoped that the wine would last, that it would get over the week of people arriving, you know, Uncle Leo from Masada and so on and so forth. And in the middle of the wedding, finally it came to an end. They just had no more money, no more provisions to pull this crisis out of the water. But here's the real twist, and this is the third point. It is more than social embarrassment. Because they had not fulfilled the duties of hospitality, they might be exposed to a lawsuit. The bridegroom and his bride, we know from Jewish culture, stood to lose financially up to perhaps one half of the value of the presents they would have gotten. And indeed, if they were invited again to any of the weddings of their guests, they would be expected to bring even better and, and bigger and more glorious gifts than normal because of their failure in hospitality. So here we have a desperate situation of a family that is poor, that is vulnerable, on the very first day of their marriage, facing legal suits. A terrible thing indeed. And yet Jesus knows this, doesn't he? He knows before it even occurs what their situation is, what's going to happen, and what he's going to do about it. That's the case with Christ, isn't it? He knows our needs, he knows our weaknesses, before we even fully understand their consequences and he will deal with them in advance of us facing them. You'll notice that our passage has the interaction between Jesus and his mother. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Certainly is a very terse response, isn't it? The word woman is not a disrespectful form of address, but it certainly is highly unusual in a Jewish society when you apply it to your mother. There's no trace of disparagement here of his mother, but there seems to be a coldness, a certain distancing of Jesus from his mother here. And we start to get an idea of why that is the case in the second part of the verse, in, in verse 4. My hour has not yet come. What's Jesus meaning in this cryptic saying, my hour has not yet come? Well, John tells us 
the meaning later on in his gospel in 7.30 and 8.20 um, and uh, chapter 12 and 13 and 17, several times. The hour is referring to the hour of his crucifixion and the hour of his exaltation. And Jesus is reminding his mother in a terse but in a firm way that there is a different time schedule on his life now. He is no longer as the eldest son, always available at her beck and call. And there is no mention of Joseph, of course. She is now already a widow. But Jesus is no longer available to her beck and call. There is a different time schedule on his life. And the time schedule is the plan of his father to which he must submit willingly and joyously, knowing that the way of the cross lies ahead of him and beyond that the joy of restoration with his father in the resurrection and ascension. It poses a question for us, doesn't it? That no matter how important the relationship might be, the responsibility is in our life of this or that, we must always prioritise the will of God. Now you notice in verse 5 that Mary doesn't take this rather terse response as an insult or as in some way demeaning her. Rather she is totally confident in her son. That's what she says. Do whatever he tells you. Why is she so confident in Jesus in the face of this rather blunt distancing? The answer is that she already had been told by the angels of who her son Jesus would be before he was born. There was the miracle of the virgin birth. She had already seen his perfect life of obedience. She had already seen when he was 12 that he was already devoted to his father's house. Remember that episode in the temple where he disappeared and they found him speaking to the teachers there. Wouldn't you expect to find me in my father's house, he says. And she knew, knew of course, that he was God's promised Messiah. So she had taken in very carefully what God had said about her son. And she had perfect confidence in his ability to deal with the situation. You'll notice then how Jesus proceeds. And we see that in verse 6. He told them, now draw some out. Of course, um, um, sorry, um, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for Jews for ceremonial washing. By that they're referring to the washing of their hands before they ate, part of the purity laws of Judaism, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So these are large jars, large stone jars. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Isn't that intriguing? 
God is not a Scrooge McDuck who fills them halfway up, three quarters way up, two thirds up. No, full to the brim. That's the nature of grace. It is full to the brim. And we see the absolute wonder of the generosity of God starting to be revealed. It's a pointer to the greatness and abundance and the magnitude of the miracle that's going to occur and the immensity of the gift that Jesus is going to give to, to the couple. They did so, we are told, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been tasted, turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Here we are already being teased by John. Where is the source of this miracle? It's from God, through Christ, the Messiah, his Son, the Eternal Son. That's the source of the miracle. Then we are told he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have too much to drink. So what you do is uh, you bring out a $20 bottle of Talak Chardonnay, slam that down them, and then of course you bring out the, the cardboard version of the wine with the little spout that you press, much cheaper. But no, it's not like that. In this wedding, you start off with the $20 bottle of Chardonnay. And then it's completed with the Penfolds Grange Hermitage worth thousands. That's how it works. The best is kept to last. And here we see that Jesus knows the needs of this impoverished little family on their first day of their marriage. And he leaves them this asset filled to the brim. Of course, more is drunk in the wedding. But these vast jars would still contain an extraordinary amount of high quality wine, the very best wine, which they could sell. And of course, that would rescue them from the crippling liability of their poverty, let alone the potential lawsuits that are now all swept from the board and they can breathe easy. You see, Jesus is one who knows the needs of his people and provides much more abundantly for them than could be really ever imagined. Now, all of that background is remarkable and it's powerful and it helps us to see important thrusts of the passage that we are not aware of. But it's not the main point of the passage at all. We get to that in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. Who notices this miracle? Well, the bridegroom is eventually aware that something has happened. The servants knew where the water had come from and how it had been changed. But that doesn't elicit any faith in their, in their life. The only people that realise the real significance of this miracle, its real power, are those who have engaged already with Jesus as Messiah, who have faith and trust in him, his disciples. Only they see the glory in this miracle. And what is the glory? The glory is this, that this carpenter has come to this little local wedding in downtown Cana with the plaster ducks on the wall and the tacky chairs, couches I should say, and the probably fairly unimpressive guests other than himself and the disciples and his mother. And they realise in the midst of all this orderliness there has been an extraordinary revelation that the eternal Son through whom the whole universe was made, who is the perfect reflection of God's glory we read about in Hebrews 1.3, that one has come to little downtown Cana. Who's ever heard of that place? And visited this little ordinary wedding and graced it with an extraordinary gift, knowing the needs of a couple who did not even believe in him. That is the glory and magnificence of God. That is the kind of God that the Eternal Son is. And the disciples marvel at that and they will see even greater signs than this revealed. Well there's our exposition of the passage, if I put it that way. Now I'm just going to say four things about the significance of this miracle at Canaan. The first thing we see is we just obviously see the, the great compassion of Jesus to a, a young married couple who being poor faced a crippling liability on their first day wine had run out and he gave them a much more bountiful gift than they could ever imagine, which they could use as an asset. Secondly, John's emphasis, however, as important as that background is and as crucial as it is, is upon the glory of Jesus shining through the outward lowliness of Jesus. He's just a carpenter with mum and his assorted band, whoever they are, visiting this little village. The son of Joseph, who's But he's, of course, the glorious eternal son. And the glory of the Father works through him. <coughs> Thirdly, this glory is a glory that can only be perceived by the eyes of faith. Bridegroom and bride, mister, 
the other guests visited, servants sort of knew in a vague way what happened. And of course the master of ceremonies um, remarked on how wonderful it was. But none of this affected their lives at all. It's only through faith you can see the true glory of Christ. And lastly we have to realise that the stone jars with their washing rituals represents something. It represents Judaism with its purity laws, with its mosaic law, by which you will be kept clean. That is how you show your holiness before God. And it is rightly so. But Jesus has now come and has revealed who he is, the eternal Son of God. And he is revealing the much greater glory of his Father and indeed of himself as the eternal Son. The old is swept away, the old wineskins are replaced by the newness of the glory of Christ. So there's four great truths that come out of our passage. Now just sort of wrapping up four applications. Very simple. First one, remember Jesus is invited to this wedding. He's not a wet blanket. He's attractive. People want him to be there. They want to be with him. Crowds flock to him. And we are to be the same. Not in the sense that crowds flock to us, but that we are the kind of people who rejoice with those who rejoice, who sorrow with those who sorrow, and build those kind of relationships with people that will be attractive in the long term in terms of advertising the kingdom. So application number one. Application number two. Do we really believe that Jesus will meet our deepest needs and longings? Our deepest insecurities? We live in a world of terrible insecurity at the moment. Don't we? Of tragedy and horror. We have to put our trust in Christ that he will meet our deepest needs and insecurities. And amongst the terrible stream of refugees leaving Ukraine, there will be believers amongst those. And they have to trust that Christ knows their deepest needs and longings. In the case of this young couple, they were defeated at the beginning. Everything was lost when the wine ran out and they faced a terrible future. Christ knows that. He knows our needs and longings and he will answer them in his own time and way. Third application. Do we see the Father's claim as having a prior claim on us before any other relationship? Jesus must have been able to say to his mother, with a certain gentleness, woman, why do you involve me with this? 
My hour has not yet come. And we have to continually remind ourselves that we love Jesus first before any other relationship. And then in light of that, all the other relationships that flow from that have priority and importance. But we must love Jesus first. Fourthly and lastly, is our religion just one of externals? One of being clean on the outside, being respectable on this or that issue, of doing the right kind of liturgy or the right kind of this or that in our church. And we forget that our walk with God is not just a set of narrow do's and don'ts, do this, avoid that. No. We can't just be nice people on the inside. We have to be transformed. Sorry, we can't just be nice people on the outside. We have to be transformed on the inside. And the way we do that is the way that the disciples give us the clue here. Is to focus on the status and authority and glory of Jesus. And to consider, for example, in John's Gospel, all the ways in that is revealed. And then to put our faith in him. That will transform our relationship with Jesus and bring us into the kind of relationship that he is pleased with and will pour his grace out in our lives in response to. Amen.